Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So we start a new series today in Colossians, as Megan said, and this is an exegetical series. That is, we're going through a book of the Bible over six weeks as opposed to a topical series, which we've been in, and, and the topical series that we've been in was heavy, and so it's sort of nice to change the pace and just take, uh, make our, uh, take our time going through this short letter of um, the New Testament. One way to think about going through a letter like this and going through a passage exegetically is <clears throat> the aim of this sermon is for you to be able to go home and read Colossians 1, 1 to 14, and having heard this sermon and having spent time thinking about it, you'll go home and read it, and it'll be in three dimensions as opposed to two dimensions Having if you just read it and, and don't really take the time to think about it. So the aim of this sermon really is to get you in this passage so that it brings it up into three dimensions, and, and hopefully as I speak, you, hear, you do hear God's word, but also it gives you an opportunity to go home and read the passage afterwards in three dimensions. That's one way to think about an exegetical sermon series. Uh, two weeks ago, Ferro Augusto was on, and if you were here on that Sunday, it was crowded around here. It was so thick of people down Great North Road. I was walking down Great North Road, and, um, and this, this person made a beeline towards me. I was sort of quite close to the um, other side of Great North Road, made a beeline towards me and started to ask me how I was. And, and um, I told him how I was going and then asked me what I was doing. Um, during uh, for the afternoon, I said, oh, "Well, after this, I'll go home and spend time with the kids, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I was wondering, this guy is so nice. Why did he make a beeline towards me? And then I realised I was walking past Vision Personal Training, and he had a red T-shirt on. And for some reason, he chose me to ask. I don't know what, what about my physique made him do that, but he had an agenda. He told me that they had a special going on at the moment. If I signed up today, I'd blah blah blah. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and sort of realised halfway through that they've got an agenda? There are all sorts of agendas that are trying to pull us in. There's the more insidiously corrupting agendas. So the gambling industry really wants you to download one of their apps or their app so that it makes it very easy for you to put a bet on a game. It's so much easier to put a bet on a device in your pocket than go to the TAB, the tab. So if they win that battle, that's quite a battle to win. They want to pull you in onto their agenda. They want to make you little devoted gamblers, which is what they do with their pokies machines. So much research has gone into those machines to make them as addictive as possible. They want to pull you in into their agenda. There's not only the gambling industry, there's the growing addiction that we all have, or many of us have, to our devices. Uh, Kristen Harris, who was a design ethicist and a product philosopher for Google, design ethicist and product philosopher, imagine that, for Google, and he left his job because, to quote him, he says, everything is being intentionally designed for distraction and addiction because that's where the money is. And that's why he left his job. And and what I'm about to say was taken from a blog post by Seth Godin, who writes a lot about uh, technological use and and its uh, bad effects on on people. He says in, in his blog, reminder, 
Your phone doesn't actually work for you. You pay for it, yes, but it works for a multi-million dollar corporation in California, not for you. You're not the customer, you're the product. It's your attention that's for sale along with your peace of mind. Silicon Valley, Facebook, the social media giants, they've got an agenda for your lives. They want to get your attention. They want to distract you. They want you to look at your devices. I could go on. Schools, employers, families maybe even, have agenda for our lives. Agendas for our lives. And so does Jesus. And we're going to explore that this morning. And when it comes to these agendas, the questions to ask are, which agenda is freeing? Which agenda is freeing, not enslaving? Which one gives space and room to breathe for our humanity to flourish rather than make us feel reductive, reduced, and cramped? They're the questions to ask. You'll have agendas that will want to pull you in. And which one is most spacious and allowing for flourishing? They're the questions to ask. And so this morning we start this new series in the book of Colossians. And the writer, the Apostle Paul, he'd never met this particular group of Jesus followers. They sprang up as a result of his ministry, though. So 10 years earlier, before writing this letter, Paul had spent three years in the major city of Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey, which is about 160 kilometers from Colossae. So he spent three years in Ephesus. And whilst Paul was in Ephesus, he was telling everyone he could about the risen Jesus. And a man named Epaphras, who was from Colossae, heard him, heard Paul speak about Jesus. And Epaphras became a believer. He returned to his hometown, speaking to others about Jesus in Colossae. And so the church in Colossae was born. One person speaking about Jesus resulted in a church of believers. And now 10 years after that, Epaphras visits Paul, who's in a Roman prison, a cold Roman prison. Epaphras visits Paul, and Epaphras is concerned about his little church that he's leading. It's as if the church that had took root because of Jesus has now not left Jesus behind, but incorporated Jesus into other people's agendas. And we're going to explore these agendas in weeks to come. But Paul's response to that concern of Epaphras's, Paul's response by this short letter could be summarized as this. The Christian life is Christ from beginning to end. The Christian life is Christ Jesus from beginning to end. You don't leave Jesus behind. You don't integrate Jesus into other systems of thought. You integrate other systems of thought into him. Christian growth is going deeper into Christ. And this is all summarized in a key verse in this short letter. So Colossians 2, 6-7. Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The goal of the letter of Colossians is to take us all deeper into Christ because that's how you grow as a Christian. And the letter begins with prayer. And and in this prayer, we see the apostles' goal for the Colossians' life. And when I say the apostles' goal, I can sort of say Jesus' goal for their life because the apostle is Jesus' representative. And so what does the apostle or Jesus want for these believers? What does he want for them? What type of people is he praying 
they become. That's what this passage will, they're the questions this passage will answer. And it's worth saying as well that, that Christ Church Inner West has an agenda, or, or to put it more positively, has a vision for your life. Christ Church Inner West has a prayer that drives everything we do. We not only have a, a tagline that you can see on the banners to help people find grace, learn, hope, be like, we also have a prayer that drives everything we do. Our prayer is that we all grow more and more into fully devoted children of God. People not more devoted to our screens, people more devoted as children of God. That's our prayer, and that's, that drives everything we do as, as a church. But that agenda... To, to grow you all as devoted children of God, that is about as broad brushstroke as it gets. Similar to saying the goal of your life is for you to become more like Jesus or God's goal for your life is for you to become more like Jesus. That's very broad brushstroke. This passage that we're about to look at helps us zoom in on the picture so that we see more specifically the contours of the life we're praying for you, that, that Paul's praying for the Colossians the contours, the more specific contours of the life Jesus wants for you. And the key questions to ask are, is the vision that Jesus wants for you, is it freeing? Is it spacious or is it reductive? Is it cramping? Is it even oppressive? And so we divide the passage into three, how God has already worked in the Colossian church, verses 3 to 8, how Paul prays God might continue to work in their lives, verses 9 to 12, and then we'll look at the basis for this kind of life that Paul's seeking for the Colossians. So we're going to jump into verse 1. It's really worth having the Bible open if you've got it there before you. What page is it? 956. Nine, Thanks, Megan. Right. We're going to jump into verse 1, page 956. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints and because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel has come to you. Just as it's bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among you from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the controlling image in, in these verses, and actually of the whole letter as a whole, comes to the surface in verse 6. The metaphor in verse 6 is that of bearing fruit. And it's used twice. Just as Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it's bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it. So what Jesus wants for you, his vision for your life and mine, is fruitfulness. Is fruitfulness. Jesus uses the image of fruitfulness a lot in his parables. There's a story of the seed that falls on four soils, and one of those soils is, is good soil, and, and it causes the seed to grow and produce a crop. Some multiplying, some seeds multiplying 30 times, some 60, some 100 times. It's a picture of fruitfulness. Or there's a time Jesus walked into Jerusalem before his impending death and he saw a fig tree with no fruit on it. And even though the gospel writer Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for fruit, 
Jesus curses the fig tree. And the next day they walk past the fig tree and it had died and withered. Jesus is either bad-tempered or irrational, or it was an enacted parable. Prophets did this a lot. An action that visualized a point. And the point Jesus was making when he did this to the fig tree was that despite God's work in Jesus, Jesus' generation had not borne fruit for God. Jesus wants fruitfulness. That's his vision for all our lives. There's a, a truncated and anemic version of the gospel that, uh, that said God used to be really into behavior in the Old Testament. That's why there are all those laws in the Old Testament. But then it got really legalistic in the Old Testament. And so Jesus came and now it's all about justification by faith. It's just about believing now rather than behavior. But that's not the gospel story. The gospel story is that Jesus comes to a people who had failed to bear fruit and by his death, resurrection and ascension to the Father and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God intends to do that which the law couldn't do to solve the fruit problem. Like no farmer is happy with an orchard that doesn't bear fruit. A farmer will never say, oh, well, there's no fruit this year, but the irrigation was excellent, the trees were beautifully aligned, and the soil was good. That's the main thing. No farmer's ever going to say that. The farmer works from the harvest backwards. Everything is about the fruit. The end game of the gospel and of the Spirit of God being poured out into our lives is us bearing fruit. And that's exactly what happened for the Colossians Look at verse 7. In verse 7, Epaphras had brought the news of Jesus to the Colossians. And that news, verses 5 and 6, which is called the word of truth, that news was the seed that resulted in verse 4 and 5, them bearing fruit. So verse 4 and 5. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The news of Jesus is the seed that grows into faith, hope, and love. The news of Jesus is the seed that grows into faith, hope, and love. Or more accurately, faith in Jesus, love for all the saints, that is the church body, love for all the church body, and hope. Faith and uh, love spring from the hope. You can notice the because. Hope is the engine that motors the present. Hope is the engine that motors their presence, similar to how Martin Luther's um, dream of a radically equal, racially equal American future, his dream of that future, drove him in the present. Except that our hope isn't a dream, it will be a reality. But it's a hope that drives us in our present. And so faith, hope and love. We're still pretty zoomed out in the picture of what it means to be a devoted child of God. But faith, hope, and love is what fruitfulness look like, looks like. So fruitfulness isn't first and foremost how many people you bring to Christ, multiplication of the seed. That's not what fruitfulness is first and foremost. It's not even your outward charisma for Jesus. That's not fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is something that goes deep. The gospel seed results in faith, 
hope and love. That's at the heart of being a child of God. And I'm going to say that it's getting to the core of a healthy human soul. So these aren't spiritual extras, nice things to have around the outside. Faith, hope and love are getting to the core of what it is to be a healthy human soul. You just have to think about the opposite. Think about the person who's not growing in, in faith, but growing in the, its opposite. Pessimism. Distrust. Cynicism. Or think about the person who's not growing warm-hearted towards others, but cold-hearted to others' needs. A cynical person, a person whose heart's becoming cold, and a person who's growing in hopelessness. Do you see how these spiritual virtues are at the core of a human soul? It's a picture of health. And this is all to say that Jesus' agenda for your life is for your flourishing. His vision for your life is for you to be healthy, loving, hopeful, full of faith in him. There's a reason why Lara painted on the parish centre just outside, faith, hope and love. It's the fruit of the gospel. So that's how God has already worked in the lives of the Colossians. Verses 9 to 12 is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And it's going to zoom up a bit closer into this vision, this agenda that Jesus has for all our lives. So um, there are three aspects to Paul's prayer. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard it, We've not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The focus here is on growing in the knowledge of God and of his will. And this isn't merely intellectual knowledge. Paul knows that head knowledge tends to puff up. This isn't intellectual knowledge. This is knowing more holistically. It's relational knowledge. You get to know someone not by reading about them, but by spending time with them through the ups and the downs and the normal times, through time. It's relational knowledge that Paul's praying for the Colossians that they have. And when you get to know someone relationally, through the ups and the downs and through time, you not only know them better, but you know how to please them. And that's where Paul goes. So he's praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work. The more that we know God through Jesus, the more that we know God and his Jesus-centered will for your life and my life and the world, the more that we know God and his will, the more we'll be able to navigate wisely through the maze of life with all of its myriad decisions in such a way that is fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work. And it's a positive feedback loop. You'll notice that at the end of verse 10, as we know God and his will more, and as we live life wisely and bearing fruit, will end up growing in the knowledge of God. It's a spiral. It's a positive feedback loop. As I know Arian more, I know how to please her more. And as I please her, I grow in my knowledge of her. 
Life becomes this upward spiral of knowing and then acting and producing fruit and then knowing some more and then acting and producing fruit and then knowing. Paul's prayer is their life becomes this upward spiral of knowing God. That's the first part of Paul's prayer. And then it continues in verse 11. The NIV is much better here. I'm going to read from the NIV. Paul prays that they be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Paul's praying that they be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, the might and power that created all things, that sustains all things, that rose Jesus from the dead. He's praying that they be strengthened by that power. And for what purpose? To live a victoriously Christian life, stamping down any barrier to success. Is that why Paul prays that they have power? Is it so they look really impressive as Jesus' people, so they make Jesus look impressive? Is that what Paul's praying for them? Paul's praying that they may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that they might have great endurance and patience. The apostle Paul knows more than nearly anyone, he's in prison as he writes, that all of our futures will involve differing degrees of suffering or spiritual dryness, maybe even persecution, or maybe just little fruit for high inputs. Paul knows that this is our futures, or a combination of those things. And what we need more than anything else is endurance and patience. So I, I think of someone known to many of us who dearly misses her husband, And what she needs is God's power for endurance and patience. I think of my former senior minister in Freshwater, who's been there for 20 years, who's worked hard for the Lord with not heaps of fruit. But what he needs is God's power for endurance and patience. Maybe maybe you've been a Christian for decades and have decades to go, and maybe it hasn't always been easy as a Christian What you need is God's power for endurance and patience. I think that's just such a fascinating thing, to be filled and strengthened by God's power for endurance and patience. That's the second part of Paul's prayer. And thirdly, Paul's prayer is that they might not be people who grit their teeth and wait patiently and endure things. That's not what Paul's praying for them, not to grit grit their teeth stoically. Paul's prayer that... Pray that they might have power and endurance, but also that they might be joyful. I'm sorry, Paul's prayer is that they might give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Joyful thanks. That's been summarized well, I think, that theology, the study of God, can be summarized if it has to be summarized by one word. Theology can be summarized by the word grace. And Christian living ethics can be summarized by another word. And that is gratitude. Our default orientation as people of the gospel is gratitude, is thankfulness. And so even as we wait and endure, all that we do as Christians so there's theology, which is grace, and, and Christian living, all of Christian living is 
tinted by the hue of thankfulness. That's what Christian living is. A former um, lecturer of mine at college, he liked little nifty summaries. And, um, and so he summarized his prayer with the words no, so no, the, the knowledge of God that I talked about before, no. And then he summarized um, the, the endure with patience as fortitude. And then he summarized the last bit as cheerfulness. And so every time he drove past KFC, he remembered to pray this prayer for someone. The KFC prayer, he called it. And he also said, I think, that it's a finger-licking good thing to pray. Goodness. There you go. But now you're going to remember it. KFC. So finally, Paul gives us the basis of this life that he's praying for them. He gives us the basis for this life in verse 12. So I'm going to read verse 12 to 14. Paul prays that they might give joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for, that is, on the basis of, or because he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I was speaking to someone uh, this week at Bounce. I was speaking to someone who grew up in the Philippines and he described life in the Philippines during the 1950s and 60s as being marked by poverty, and political instability. And so when he was given the opportunity to come to Australia in the 1970s, he took it with both hands. He describes life in Australia compared to the Philippines as stable. And so he was able to work a job, buy a home, and raise a family. The basis for our living the life of faith, hope, and love, of fruitfulness, of enduring with joyful thanks, the basis of that kind of life is that God has transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his son. God has done something for us. In his death, we've died to this dominion of darkness that he calls it, the, the power of the evil one. We've died to that. And in his resurrection, we've received the power of resurrection in our hearts, the Holy Spirit, to live the resurrection life now. It's as if we've experienced a great spiritual migration. And where we find ourselves now is stable. Like he had travelled from the Philippines to Australia. In the kingdom of the sun he loves, in the kingdom of light, there is no corruption, there's freedom and there's light. And just as my friend could finally begin to flourish in Australia, in the kingdom of the sun, the soil is rich. We have all we need to produce the healthy fruit, uh, healthy fruit sorry, that sprouts from the gospel. We don't get into the kingdom of the sun by living the kind of life I've described, the kind of life Paul's praying for them. We don't get into that kingdom by living that kind of life. The good news is that in Jesus we've been transferred. It's happened to us. God has acted and changed us as citizens, to be citizens of this kingdom of light. So here we stand on healthy soil, ready to flourish. So this this short passage is a precious prayer. It's a prayer that should model our own prayers. Remember KFC? When you go past the KFC, pray for someone. But not only is it a model, it's a picture of the type of people that God is creating us into. God is forming us into being as devoted children of God. It's a vision of spiritual health. It's a vision of faith, hope, and love. It's a vision of thankfulness sort of 
permeating our whole life. It's a vision of enduring and being patient. I personally can't think of a better vision for my life. It's Jesus' vision for your life. Let's, let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you so much that you have acted for us in Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus you have, or we have died to this this world and we live for your kingdom. We live in the kingdom of the Son you love. Father, we thank you that you've placed us in this soil. We thank you that you've filled us with your Holy Spirit and we pray that you continue to do a work in us so that we are people who are characterised by faith and hope and love, people who are characterised by joyful thanks, even whilst we endure and be patient. Father, please continue to work your grace amongst us in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen.